Great. Well, I'd like to start just by painting three pictures for you. In the first picture, yeah, not like Bev would, <laughs> although Bev has done us a very good picture, which I, I don't think we're going to have up on screen, but it's, it's our Rooted in Christ series is based in part around a picture that Bev painted for us. It's on the new sheet. Thank you. These three pictures, one of them, a witch doctor, watches as a more powerful person comes to his town and takes all of his followers. The second picture, a king stands in his palace reading a letter, his face ashen. And the third one, a man stands in a field under open skies looking down at the body of his dead brother. What do these three stories have in common? Well, they're all stories from the Bible. You may possibly have twigged some of them already. But they're three stories where people come to terms with the fact that they have done something that offends God. And as we're doing this series on being rooted in Christ, it seems absolutely essential that we deal with what does it mean to be rooted in Christ and to deal with the fact that we are not perfect. It's one of the most human things that there is to fail, to mess up. We put it in lots of different ways. And lots of different religions come up with ways to try and deal with that. What does it mean to deal with offending God if we're rooted in Christ? Well, my topic today then is confession and repentance. And I have to say, those two words, you look them up in the dictionary, they may not sound the most exciting things to be preaching on, but actually I'm really excited because I'm convinced that confession is beautiful. And I hope that will come out as we go along. And I'm convinced that repentance is exciting. And I hope that will come out too as we go through the series. So, the series, as we go through the stories even. There are these three stories that I've told you here, three pictures I've given you, and each of those has at the root of it a question about God, about truth, about sin. And we're going to look at them one after the other and hopefully pull out those questions and some answers to them. Most of what we're going to be looking at scripture-wise, although there is a lot spread throughout the Bible, obviously on this subject, is going to be in the first letter of John. So if you want to get your Bibles out or switch them on or whatever version you have of the scriptures, we will be making extensive use of, of 1 John chapters 1 and 2. Now, the letter of 1 John was actually written about a very specific problem in the church that he was addressing, which I'm not going to go into today. So we won't be following it through in the verse order that he wrote it, but I would advise you go away and read it. Chapters 1 and 2 are just fantastic. And if you follow them through, he's making a very specific argument about how we should live. It's really well worth doing. But we're going to start off, if I go the right way through the clicker, with the man looking down at his dead brother, which is, of course, the story of Cain. One of the earliest stories in the Bible, this is Genesis 4, and Cain's response to his offering being rejected and Abel's being accepted, his response to that jealousy inside him is to kill his brother. And we read in Genesis 4, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When, oh, I keep doing this, don't I? There you go. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, in a second, I'm going to read what Cain's response is, but I'd like you to be thinking when I'm reading it about Cain's response. What does it say to you? What is it missing? This is what Cain says. My punishment is more than I can bear. 
Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer in the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. I just wonder, has anyone got any thoughts? What do you think of that as a response? Stick a hand up or something. Mary. It's self-pity, absolutely. I thought we might go through several before we got there. It's self-pity. There's no sense of remorse whatsoever, is there? You see, at the root of Cain's interaction with God is the question, why shouldn't I do what I like? Or perhaps, who is it who says it's wrong? And that's actually a question that gets asked a lot at the moment, isn't it? Everybody can come up with their own standard of what's right and wrong. The value that we hold highest, perhaps, in society is tolerance of other people's uh, sets of beliefs. But the difficulty is, with following too far down that, that there is an absolute standard. So this is what John says in 1 John. This is the message that we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. God is light. In him there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet live in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And the difficulty with going down that relativistic path of who says it's wrong is that it's not just a set of arbitrary decisions by God as to what's right or wrong. God is light, and the way that he has made the universe right and wrong is part of the very fabric of the universe. And if we pit ourselves against God's standards... It's not some kind of power struggle between us and God. It's just shutting our eyes to reality. To put it another way, I can walk into my kid's bedroom after dark and say it's light, but I'm still going to bang my shins on something and tread on Lego. So the first step in working out how do we cope with messing up, how do we cope with offending God, is to admit that he has the right to define what is right and what's wrong. He has standards. The key really is God's light. And that's going to be a theme we're going to pick up on lots today. You might know if you've read the Gospel of John, the first letter of John, John loves life and light. And he puts those two together. You remember at the beginning of John 1, in him was light and that light was the life of men. So our first point is we need God's light. What about the second story? Well, the second story is King David reading the letter. And the letter is from Bathsheba, at this point not his wife, saying that she's pregnant with his son. And the question is, what does he do? Well, we know from David, we know from the Psalms he wrote, he does realize that God's standards carry in his life. He really does. He knows that God has the right to define right and wrong. And that isn't his question. His question is a little bit further down the line. It's, can I cover it up? Can I get away with it? Can I hide it? We probably know Psalm 51, which is his response to uh, when he kind of comes to terms with his own sin. And he makes this fantastic confession and asks to be cleansed. But there's also Psalm 32. It's not necessarily specifically about this incident, but it conveys this, this sense in him. He says, you know, when I was silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. And the fact is that, no, he can't get away with it. One of the most enduring proverbs, one of the few that very few people will argue with, is the truth will out. You'll have heard it in different forms. And this is what David finds, of course, eventually. Um, Steve was pointing out to me in the Watergate scandal, 
one of the reflections of somebody who was involved in that is that the most powerful administration in the world couldn't keep that secret. You know, the truth will out. And uh, Jesus says this as well. In Luke 12, he says that, you know, be on your guard against hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Those are words to strike fear into my heart sometimes, I have to say. But this is a a principle of the kingdom of God is that the truth will come out. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I think confession is beautiful. I'd like to explain a little bit more about that. There's a fantastic passage at the beginning of Isaiah where Isaiah, on behalf of God, says, come on, let's reason together. Though your sins are red as scarlet, they will be white as wool. Now, in case that image doesn't quite capture it for you, I have a little story about a holiday we took to Cornwall. Uh, We often go down to Cornwall to stay with Caroline's parents in a holiday cottage down there, and they were off for the day. And Caroline and I looked at each other suddenly and thought, it's been very quiet. What's Poppy up to? Those of you who know Poppy will know that when she's quiet, the world could be ending in another room, quite possibly. And we went through there, and sure enough, she had found Caroline's nail varnish and was painting her nails. But being two, she wasn't just painting her nails. (laughs) And this beautiful royal blue carpet that, as far as we could tell, was newly laid that year, was beautifully decorated with some red nail varnish. And the sinking sensation in my heart when I saw that. And we envisaged conversations with Caroline's parents, trying to explain to them why it was that we hadn't been supervising Poppy. And then conversations with the holiday letting agents about how much it was going to cost to replace the carpet. And we were praying. (laughs) We were also looking on Google, which, thank the Lord, has lots of articles on how to remove nail varnish from carpets. And after keeping it very, very wet, this is what you do. If if you're using this as a primer on how to get stains out of carpets, you keep it wet and you get nail varnish remover and you just work at it again and again and again and you keep wetting it. And it worked after about 20 minutes of wetting and scrubbing and praying and wetting and scrubbing and praying. That carpet was back to normal again. And I cannot tell you the relief that that felt. I cannot tell you how beautiful it was to go back the next year and go, yep, can't see it got away with that, (laughs) but in the right way, because we put it right. So I think confession is beautiful, because what it brings about is that cleaning, that purifying. There you go. This is what 1 John says about it. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins, and purify us of all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. He will forgive, he will purify, and the carpet will be clean again. But of course, in David's case, it wasn't just as simple, was it? Um, He didn't actually confess and get it sorted out. First of all, he tried to get Bathsheba's husband back from the war and send him home, hoping he'd sleep with his wife and, you know, cover it up. And when that failed, he had Uriah, the husband, killed. And actually what it took was another person with a mandate from God coming into his life and speaking to him to actually bring about that confession. And this is really important because actually God didn't make us to live in some spiritual 
well, I was going to say some spiritual vacuum, but that, you know, he, he made us for relationship with him, but not just relationship with him, but also relationship with each other. Now, David wasn't surrounded by people who could just speak to him like that because he was king and you didn't challenge the king by and large. But Nathan had a mandate from God and he came to him and he challenged him clearly. You are that man, he told the parable, which opened up David's sin to him, told him, you are that man. And that brought about the change and repentance in David. And there's that call on us, isn't there? And James puts it explicitly in his, you know, his book. He says, confess your sins to one another. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we should form an orderly queue up here and get the microphone and everybody proclaim it in that way. Although I know some churches have done that, actually, and it's been a really good experience for them. There's some videos on YouTube of people coming up with sandwich boards around them saying what they were and what God's done in them, which is quite powerful to watch. But what I am suggesting is that find one or two trusted people who you can confide in. Actually, I struggle with this. And it's not just things that we do that we shouldn't. It's the other way around. It's things that we should do that we're not doing. I really feel like I want to do this. It can be as simple as, you know, I really feel like I should be praying more often. And frankly, I'm not. It can be as big as I'm really struggling with pornography. There's one, isn't there, that no one wants to talk about. The sins that are taboo that we think, if, you know, if we believe what the devil's whispering on our ears, we think, if I ever mentioned that to somebody, they'd reject me outright. And the devil loves to do that because it keeps it in the dark. And we think, oh yeah, push it down, push it down. And don't tell anybody. And I'll just talk to God about it. And actually what we end up doing is living the lie. Why is it that it's so useful to confess to other people? Well, we've already mentioned that sometimes it stops us deceiving ourselves. David deceived himself uh, that it was all okay, <laughs> that you know, he could get away with it. And actually it took Nathan coming to him and saying, no. And it can be quite easy to lie to God sometimes, especially if we've got out of the habit of listening to what he's saying back to us. We can get into the habit of, of perhaps being that bit duller in our conscience and we can deceive ourselves that it's okay. This one's all right. As long as I don't go any further. So it can stop us deceiving ourselves. Actually, we, um, we have some friends at the moment who got in touch with us and said, uh, we really want to be accountable about a particular issue. And, you know, would you hold us accountable for the next few weeks about it? And we said, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And it became rapidly apparent in the first couple of days that that was going to involve us saying, no, you're saying that's okay, but it's really not. And this comes to the second point. It can be an effective deterrent against sin as well. Sometimes it's harder to admit to your friend than it is to admit to God that you've done something wrong or that you missed an opportunity to do something right. Certainly that's been my experience um, over the years. We have this system at OCC called personal pastoring. If, you've, if you're new to us, you may not have heard of it. And it's a way of setting up mentoring relationships to help us go deeper with Christ. And my experience has been, uh, through the mentoring relationships I've had, that it can be a really effective deterrent against sin, knowing that I'm going to meet with that guy next week and I'm going to have to say what I did. So it can be a really good deterrent to confess to each other. And also it encourages other people to be open. By being vulnerable with other people, by confessing to them what we've done, it gives them permission not to push it down in their lives as well. When we bring things into the light 
and see them washed away. It encourages other people to do the same. And that's really powerful, the power of vulnerability. I've mentioned personal pastoring. That's a great way to do it. And if that's something you'd like to explore, talk to myself, talk to Steve, talk to anybody who's on the leadership here, and we can start that discussion about what it involves and, and so on. But even if you don't have that kind of relationship in place, find friends you can trust and be open with. You see, it's not just enough to have God's light. We need to actually be, oh, there we go. I forgot my bullet points. In the light, there we go. It's not just enough to have God's light. We need to be in the light. Now, that brings us to our third story. I mentioned a witch doctor. I mean, I don't really have in my head clearly what a Jewish sorcerer in the first century looked like. But in my head, it's somewhere between a witch doctor and Darren Brown because he's leading the people astray with all these kind of amazing feats and trickery. And we don't really know if it's based in, you know, demonic powers or just mind tricks. Who knows? But in any case, this is Simon the Sorcerer um, from Samaria. We read about him in Acts 8. And he leads all the people after him. They say that he's the great power of God. That's the name they give him. What a name to be given. Can you imagine going around with people saying he's the great power of God? And he likes it. But when Philip turns up, he starts doing greater things. We don't really read what they are, but he starts doing greater things, and the people all go after Philip instead. And actually, at first, the story seems to be going well. Simon himself believes and is baptized. You think, yes, he's seen God. He's seen the real power. He's believed he's been baptized. But actually, this story isn't really 100% positive at all. Because then Peter and John come from Jerusalem, and start praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And you know from reading Acts that at that time, quite often what that meant was people spontaneously prophesying, speaking in tongues. It was an exciting thing that happened when they laid their hands on them. And the thing is, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, give me this ability so that everyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit as well. You see, although he'd believed in Jesus and he'd been baptized, so he'd confessed sin. Yes, I'm sinful. I need to be baptized. Actually, he hadn't changed. He still wanted people to like him and follow him. He still wanted to manipulate people. In fact, Peter calls him out. He says, I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Typical blunt Peter. There we go. You see, Simon's question is not, does God have the right Simon's question isn't, can I hide it? Simon's question is, do I actually have to change? Interestingly enough, when you read in the Old Testament the word repent, it can actually be two words behind the scenes in Hebrew. One of them is literally to cry. So if you know, for instance, the prophecy where um, Jeremiah talks about a a weeping will be heard and he's foreseeing the, the massacre of the innocents at the birth of Jesus, that word to cry there is sometimes the word used for repent elsewhere. But far more commonly, the word for repent is actually the word to turn or to turn back and go. It's the word that God uses when he's talking about the exiles coming back from Babylon. It's the word used to turn around. And there's this sense of repent. It's not just sort of saying, yes, I'm sorry. I did it. I didn't do it. It's actually changing. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. That's John 14. And John actually unpacks it a bit further. He says, if someone claims I know God, 
but doesn't obey God's commandments. That person's a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, actually, this is the 2011 version of the NIV. I, I prefer the 1984 NIV here. It has this lovely image. Those who, um, who say they live their life in God should walk as Jesus did. And I really like that picture of walking as Jesus did because Jesus, as he walked around ministering in first century Palestine, he did everything in the light. He, every, everything he did was on display all the time. He stood up in front of a crowd far bigger than this, and I'm not going to do this for myself, and said, can anyone here prove me guilty of sin? Can you imagine doing that? I'm not going to. (laughs) Too many of you know me too well. Jesus did it. He challenged them. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He'd lived in the light, and he'd lived perfectly. In fact, when people came to arrest him, he said, every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So we need to obey God's commands. But just to be clear here about what I'm not saying, this is not we are saved because of what we do. Any more than you can cure measles by rubbing the spots off. You can't cure measles by rubbing the spots off, but if you cure somebody's measles, the spots should go. And this is what this passage is saying. If you truly have been changed inside, you will see that worked out in how you live. Again, in this, other people can help. I'll say the personal pastoring thing once more on this one. Having somebody who is mentoring you, somebody who is calling you up and saying, you know, you've mentioned this. You mentioned it about six months ago, and actually I think there's another challenge for you to take another step here. That's a really valuable thing to do. It's not always easy. Simon and Carol, who pastor us, uh, once took us aside and said, you know, your kids, just they're not really engaging on a Sunday morning. And it's because you're really concerned with you engaging and because you're running around doing a million other things like organizing kids' work, but actually you're neglecting your own kids and they're not learning how to worship God. And you'll remember, Simon, it wasn't easy. And (laughs) Caroline and Carol will remember it wasn't easy. But my goodness, it did us good. And it called us up to something greater. We'd given them permission to challenge us. And for the first time it happens, you sometimes think, well, maybe I shouldn't have given them permission to challenge us. But it brings about what's good in us. It's in Hebrews, isn't it? It says no son likes discipline at the time, but it does bring out good fruit. You see, it's not enough just to be in the light. We need to walk in the light. Now, I said that confession is beautiful. I said that repentance is exciting. Now, this is why repentance is exciting, because repentance is not just about what you're turning from, but what you're turning to. And there's a fantastic passage, isn't there, in Hebrews about throwing off everything that could hinder us and the sin that easily entangles and running the race laid out for us like Jesus did. Because if I'm turning from sin, I'm not just turning from an empty way of life that does me harm, but I'm turning towards a race that I'm running towards Jesus the maker and creator of the universe. I get to live for him. I get to be part of his plans. This is fantastic, guys. This is not just getting rid of the old, but this is repentance to the new, which is exciting and purposeful and meaningful. This is not me winning a gold medal that might get nicked in a burglary 20 years later. This is 
an eternal reward and a well done from the saviour of the universe. That's exciting. I find that exciting. I hope you do as well. So confession is beautiful, but repentance is exciting and it takes us somewhere. We've been through three stories, three questions, three hurdles, if you like. I'd like to come to a fourth story now. And this is a thief hanging on a cross. Because Jesus was crucified as one of three crosses between two thieves. And one of them hurled insults at him. And the other one went through this process very, very quickly, has to be said. He acknowledged that Jesus was perfect. He acknowledged that he wasn't. And then he appealed. He didn't really have any life left to change. So all he had left was his words. But he appealed with everything he had. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He said, we're suffering for what we've done. That's just. But he hasn't done anything wrong. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And I want to appeal, Steve mentioned it earlier, to anybody here who doesn't yet know God's forgiveness. Because it is an amazing thing. I still remember the time when I became a Christian. I was 14. I was away at a church weekend. And at that time, guilt was a major part of my life. Because I was, among other things, a compulsive liar. I'd spun all these stories because I was insecure. And I thought I would make myself more likable if I had um, you know, all these different stories about me. And the trouble was that I had to tell more stories to explain the old ones, why this hadn't happened despite this. And you ended up with this tangled web. And I just remember feeling guilty, going to bed every night and just feeling guilty. And I remember distinctly, after giving my life to Jesus, sitting in the car on the way home with my head back on the parcel shelf, and it was sunny, it was just that lovely warm car feeling, combined with a sense of lightness, because it had just been taken off. And that's why I'm saying, if you don't know Jesus' forgiveness, please come and talk to somebody at the end. Talk to me, talk to Steve, talk to the person who you came with, because it is a privilege I feel so privileged to have been offered that chance to be free of all the rubbish. And I'd love to extend that on God's behalf to you. So if you haven't received God's forgiveness, you can today. For those of us who do know God's forgiveness, I think there's a couple of challenges for us as well. Perhaps one of them is just to acknowledge that God has the right to define right and wrong. We can quite easily start to take our cues on morals from society. We can start to take them from what we feel should be right and what we feel should be wrong. But actually, as we were hearing last week, we have a written testimony in the Bible, and the Bible makes it clear what's right and what's wrong. And I think for some of us, there's a challenge to say, I want to line up my life with the Bible. I want to line up my life with what God says is right and wrong, rather than defining it for myself. And that might be just on a particular issue, or that might be as a general heart attitude. But there is that challenge for us today. And the other challenge would be to find somebody that you can trust and to confide in, and to make it a regular practice to confess to each other. These are the things that are not right in my life. These are the things that I want to be investing myself into. Would you help me? Would you stand alongside me? Would you mentor me? Would you coach me? Whatever it might be in that relationship 
so that I can walk in the light and become more like Jesus.